The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, happy Tuesday, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks. I'm your exhausted host, Chelsea Henderson, and I just want to note that today marks the one-week anniversary of Election Day 2020, which capped off what really turned out to be quite the robust election season. I have to say, as an American, it was really empowering to see so many new voters participate in our democracy, as the more people who vote, I think the stronger we are as a nation. Today, I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast a fellow former Senate staffer, Alex Flint. Alex currently heads up the Alliance for Market Solutions, an organization of conservative leaders addressing two of America's most pressing challenges, the need to reduce carbon pollution and grow the economy. Alex certainly has expertise in these areas, and he's also served as the Vice President of Government Affairs at the Nuclear Energy Institute and as Staff Director of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Well, at the time of recording with our guest, we still didn't know the outcome of some key races. On Saturday, former Vice President Joe Biden was declared the winner of the presidential race. Still, in the heart of the episode, Alex and I used what we do know about the outcomes to chat about various scenarios playing out in the U.S. Senate. Also in this episode, we continue to bring you election reactions from our spokesperson team. And of course, this week's Whose Line Is It Anyway?, I asked my teammates to identify the speaker of the following quote. There is a cooling and there is a heating. I mean, look, it used to not be climate change. It used to be global warming. That wasn't working too well because it was getting too cold all over the place. And here's our response from Wen Lee. That sounds like President Trump. And the response from Alex Bosmoski. Yeah, that's Trump. Coming in with Bob Inglis. Oh, Chelsea, you're reaching back into the decade of disastrous disputation here with this quote, I got to figure, because it's, it's really dated. So it must be in that time period of 2008 to 2018. There's so many nominations uh, for the honor or dishonor of this quote. I'm thinking it might be Mark Meadows, the uh, chief of staff to President Trump. Batting cleanup, our producer Price Atkinson. I've only got one guess, and I'm going to guess Donald Trump. For those of you who guessed President Donald Trump, you are right. It was President Trump who said, There is a cooling and there is a heating. I mean, look, it used to not be climate change, it used to be global warming. That wasn't working too well because it was getting too cold all over the place. And now, my conversation with Alex Flint. As promised, I'm here with Alex Flint from the Alliance for Market Solutions and a fellow Senate alum. I'm going to ask, are you a Senate snob, Alex? I have I have gotten past those days. I now think we have to work with all manners of institutions of government. But come on, you still think the Senate is the best, right? Uh, there is no point in me discussing that with you. <laughs> 
every possible answer I could give could harm my interest. So I'll, I will take a pass. You are so diplomatic. I love it. Well, um, listeners, as I mentioned, Alex did used to um, be the staff director for the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, which is one of the key um, legislative committees in the Senate that has control over, has jurisdiction over issues pertaining to clean energy and um, tangentially climate change. And I only say tangentially because I was Environment and Public Works Committee staff, and we thought we were the Climate Change Committee. So um, I thought it would be really fun to have you on today, Alex, because I know at the time of recording, we're still waiting to hear about some key races, but it does seem that the Senate will remain in Republican hands. And there is going to be a little musical chair playing as far as committee chairmanships go. And I thought it might be interesting for our listeners to hear what your thoughts are on that and how that might change the outlook for energy, clean energy specifically, and our favorite issue, the carbon tax, moving into the next congressional session, if that sounds good for you. <laughs> I spend all day thinking about those things. I'm delighted to have that conversation. <laughs> well, let's start off. Now, did you work for... Senator Lisa Murkowski, or were you back to at Frank Murkowski? No, I, I, so I worked for Senator Domenici. I worked for Senator Stevens on the Appropriations Committee, Senator Domenici again when he was chairman of the Senate Energy Committee. Okay, I couldn't remember how far back your tenure went, and I honestly was racking my brain in the shower this morning trying to remember. I knew there was someone between Frank Murkowski and Lisa Murkowski, and I don't know why I forgot Senator Domenici, who was a lovely, lovely man. Both of the senators from Mexico took a turn at being chairman of that committee between the two Murkowskis. Well, well, um, she is term limited, right, from um, keeping her spot at the helm, which um, I will just let our listeners know, this is something that Republican, the Republican caucus in the Senate does, is it limits how long you can hold the gavel. And they did d- divide it out, right? You could have six years as a ranking member and six years as the chair. Right. Um, but she's done um, as chair. And so who are we looking at? Who are we expecting to take over that gavel? Well, as somebody who used to work on these seniority things in the Senate, I say first, it's it, it, one has to do it with some amount of trepidation because there's all sorts of consideration among the members as to their, how their seniority has evolved at a variety of different committees, where they want to assert their uh, seniority and where they want to take over the chairmanship. The conventional wisdom, which I have no reason to disagree with, is that John Barrasso from Wyoming will be the next Republican chairman of the Senate Energy Committee. Uh, that will be something of a shift, right? We're used to Lisa Murkowski from an oil and gas producing state, but Alaska has its own unique considerations to John Barrasso, who has another set of fossil fuel considerations because of the importance of coal to the economy of Wyoming. So they're both serious, accomplished legislators, respected by their colleagues, and and which is important because it means that they have the ability to build consensus on legislation. And like Senator Murkowski and all chairman of the Senate Energy Committee, they can use members' interest in the natural resources and the public land sides of things to build a sense of camaraderie that can then carry over to some of the energy issues. So definitely a change in some of the priorities between the two. Uh, On the other hand, you know, those of us who think about climate and think about coal and Wyoming and John Grosso have to recognize that we've been working with Lisa Murkowski, who's been thinking about oil and gas production in Alaska for all these years. So in many ways, a similar continuation. Well, 
I would like to note that I feel like she has a great reputation for getting along with her Democratic um, counterpart, whether they're in the ranking membership or and, and she's chairman or the other way around. And she seemed to have a very good working relationship with Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia. They yeah. produced an energy bill. I don't know if we think that that might happen in this um, upcoming lame duck session. I know that there were several groups that were pushing at least the pilot project portion of that bill as potential COVID recovery um, options. The the relationship between Manchin and Murkowski, I thought, was particularly a good example. You know, we, we hear all the time, or I think the media portrays that Republicans and Democrats hate each other and they don't get along. But I think that they were really able to rise above and bring their, their committee together. And, and we haven't had an energy bill since 2007. And that might not sound significant to listeners, but our energy paradigm in the U.S. has shifted tremendously in the last 13 years. And it's time. We need an energy bill. All right. So there's a lot there. So Senate Energy has a history of bipartisan leadership all the way back to when I started in working there when, when Malcolm Wallop and Bennett Johnston were the ranking member and the chairman. And I think a large part of that is because at any given time, there can be bipartisan agreement about either the energy side or the natural resources side. And so even if there are areas of disagreement, there are always areas where bipartisan collaboration at the Senate Energy Committee can be productive. And so there is an incentive to always remain engaged and for people to continually explore what is possible. You are correct. I believe there is a natural about a decade long cycle in energy legislation where uh, energy legislation is passed, you then see the regulations come out of the regulatory entities, the FERC and the other jurisdictional agencies begin to appreciate the intended and the unintended consequences of those regulations. You then begin to develop consensus for new energy legislation. And you saw that in the early 80s, you saw that in 1992, you saw that in 2005, but I think that cycle has been broken now until we reach a consensus on how to deal with the externalities with climate change, because energy policy is no longer just energy policy. It is now energy and climate policy. You're right. The role of natural gas has been transformative in the energy sector since I was there when we did the 2005 Energy Policy Act. But we don't yet have an agreement on what to do about climate. And that precludes an agreement on future energy legislation. And, and that, to me, really is the most important consideration before we're able to re regain this decade-long cycle of doing energy policy. Do you see any opening? So sort of take, taking a step back and looking at how in 2018, Kevin McCarthy in the House, you know, obviously lost a bunch of seats, lost the um, Republicans, lost control of the House after that election. And McCarthy seemed to get that he had to lead the Republican caucus in the House to do to take some climate actions. And they weren't, yeah. you know, ready to embrace a big comprehensive bill or a carbon tax or anything. But they put together that list of 13 smaller bills. And it was a, a step in the right direction, 100 percent. Do you think that McConnell looks at how close some of, you know, I feel like some of these members who were in tight races kind of coming by by the skin of their teeth. Do you think McConnell will have a similar calculus that in the Senate, something needs to be done on climate change. So those of us that do politics always are looking for the next opportunity to advance a particular issue, and particularly while we're still tired from staying up all night on the election. 
<laughs> I was going to ask if you were an up all night or did you keep the TV off because you knew those key states weren't going to be um, reporting? <laughs> um, I tend to get a bit manic on election night because I want to understand all the details of the cross tabs way down in the in details about what's going on in elections. So I, it does take me a while to, to recover from an election night. Um, But it's important to sort of think about where we are a little bit longer term, particularly because climate is something that has to be thought about, at least on the decade, if not the millennial time frame. Right. So you've got to think about these things in those sorts of scales. And and I think what you've seen is is a very significant shift over the last couple of years. The first is new groups are coming to bring pressure on climate. It's not just those interests directly in the energy space. This isn't just the oil and gas companies and the utility folks and the wind and the, and, the, and the solar folks now. Now you're seeing a much broader community of businesses and trade associations like the Business Roundtable in the U.S. Chamber and banks and hedge funds and others coming to bear on climate. That is a very changed dynamic just over the last four years. Very different. The second thing that I think is quite encouraging that we need to think about is Over the last couple of years, we've seen climate motivated by the far left, Green New Deals, uh, AOC, those sorts of things. And yet a really interesting result of this election is, first of all, Joe Biden, presuming he will be the president, is a well-known moderate. Secondly, it looks like we're going to have a Republican Senate. A Republican Senate is going to have to approve Joe Biden's nominations, not just the cabinet, but all those sub-cabinet positions, which will ensure that those nominees that are confirmed are more moderate. And so I think we're going to see a move to moderation. If you if you combine that move to moderation with this really economy-wide shift that we've seen on climate change, I think climate could be positioned as one of those things where members who want to get past hyper-partisanship, who want to demonstrate an ability to work to one, one another, are able to do that in this space. And in large part, it's because climate is driven by science and economics. It's not just a moral or a philosophical issue. There are fundamental underpinnings to this discussion that push it in a certain direction, that mandate and necessitate that there will be a political response. So Combined with what I'm envisioning as the moderation that resulted from this election, uh, the, the fact that Republicans, you know, we have a divided government. And so you have to think about both parties participating in this. I think that's in the long term interest of the climate community, because we want to see durable climate policies not enacted by one party or the other. In the end, you've got to have both parties participating so that a deal holds for the decades that it needs to. It makes it harder initially. But there, there's some promising signs in, the, in the going forward. I think that durability is really an important um, component that we actually spoke on on our last podcast. And exactly what you just said, it is not productive to have a clean power plan and then that's undone and then something else is put forward and the next administration it's undone. You can't have this ping pong back and forth. And honestly, the regulated community doesn't want that, right? They want the certainty of knowing what investments they're going to need to make over the next couple of decades. And so finding that durability and that bipartisanship, I hope you're right. I hope that it is easier in these next, you know, I always sort of think of 
I mean, Congress is due run two years, obviously, but, you know, the next two years, I think, will be sort of telling to see if we can build momentum for that. And so then I would ask, do you think there are prospects for a carbon tax as part of that mix? So I think the fund, there are three fundamental drivers for a carbon tax. The first is we need a climate policy. And for all the reasons that you and I are very familiar with, a carbon tax is the most efficient response to climate change, the most efficient way of addressing it. And so I see that as a principal driver. But I see two other principal drivers. The first is that the country needs fundamental fiscal reform, given what our deficits are and our structural deficits, where they continue at over a trillion dollars a year indefinitely. And recall, that's on about three and a half trillion dollars of revenue. So it's a large portion of our spending is, is deficit finance these days. I think that's a fundamental driver. And I think the other driver that's very interesting is the fact that other countries, as they impose costs on carbon emissions, are going to put in place border adjustment mechanisms. The EU is proceeding and we expect other major U.S. trading partners to do the same. And so I see those three things converging. Now, you can say at what point do they converge? I definitely think the middle of this decade, when we have major trust funds like Medicare going insolvent, and we've got individual tax rates going back up in 2025, and the deficits are getting worse, and our trading partners have put these border mechanisms in place. I, I don't think we can get past 2025 without this convergence of, of pressures. Are there opportunities earlier? Yes, possibly there is. A big infrastructure and climate package that President Biden might want to pursue this year. They've talked about it being $2 trillion. You know, we're, as a country, we're broke. So to have. Right. So so to have a serious conversation about a two trillion dollar package, you have to have a conversation about where the revenue is coming from. You have to talk about what our tax rates going to be. And and, and that, that has to happen in many sectors of the economy where we have to think about what what resources does the government have to do this? So so there may be opportunities and it may be that the conversation ripens quickly or it may be that the conversation ripens more slowly. It's hard to know. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. You know, I I think I've shared this stat on this podcast before, but I had read that it's very hard for the human brain to conceptualize what a a trillion is, right? The number is so large. So one trillion seconds is 32,000 years. Yeah. So if you put that into money... I mean, it's insane. So when we talk to policymakers, um, they frequently, when I talk about a reasonable carbon tax, $35 a ton raises $1.5 trillion over 10 years, you you can reduce the individual rates this much, you can make taxes. Frequently, the members will mistakenly say billions. Now, that is not true of the members on the Ways and Means and the Finance Committees. As I say, those members never confuse their billions and their trillions, right? We're way past millions at this point. But those are the policymakers who look out and say, social security is going insolvent at this date. The tax cuts are expiring at this date. We're, we're borrowing in excess of a trillion dollars a year. Those members get the scale of the challenges that we're talking about. And frankly, they're much more willing to, for example, one of the interesting things about those members is they're very comfortable talking about taxes, right? For a lot of members, when I go in and say, we need to talk about a carbon tax, that's an uncomfortable conversation for a lot of members of Congress, not to the members on Ways and Means and Finance who talk taxes all day long and know that, for example, 
Getting rid of the capital gains rate raises less than a trillion dollars over 10 years. Getting rid of the mortgage interest deduction raises less than a trillion dollars over 10 years. A carbon tax is a big deal that can make other tax reform, and I would suggest tax reform that reduces taxes on earnings and income, possible because it grows the economy and addresses climate all at the same time. So you're right. A lot of people fail to appreciate the magnitude of the fiscal problem. And they fail to appreciate the magnitude of the climate problem. They sure do. And I, I, you know, we obviously at RepublicEN.org are big fans of the border adjustable revenue neutral carbon tax. It takes revenues and use it to, uses it to offset a lowering in payroll taxes or some other um, sort of mechanism. Although, it, you know, part of me also thinks, hmm, what about just plain old deficit reduction? You know, at the end of the day, I just want a carbon tax <laughs> and I want it to be workable, right? I want it to be durable and bipartisan and... Um, I wanted to, to double back um, to, you know, we'd started this conversation with a little bit of the committee shuffling that was going on, and um, I lost my thread, but Senator John Barrasso from Wyoming going over potentially to take the gavel on the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, moving from the Environment and Public Works Committee, where he currently holds the gavel, that is the committee that I graduated from, um, and so... When you see a member like Senator Barrasso, is he, I mean, maybe he's term limited off EPW, but it doesn't feel like he's had the gavel that long. I don't know if he is or not. Somebody like Senator Barrasso has these two options and he has to make a calculus that maybe for his state of Wyoming, he can better serve his state by being chairman of ENR than he can by being chairman of EPW. But it frees EPW up. And if you're just kind of going down the list of seniority, and as you had very wisely mentioned, I mean, there's so many different calculations. It's more than just musical chairs. The music goes right. off. Take the seat that's closest to you. Um, but it does seem that Senator Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia is primed to take over that slot, which then creates this interesting dynamic, I think, where West Virginia has the ranking membership of the Energy Committee and the chairmanship of the Environment right. Committee. Right. And and there are people who say because of coal's role in the West Virginia economy, there's no opportunity for a climate deal. And I understand people who take that sort of negative, that pessimistic approach. I, I think there's a very different way of looking at it, though. I think you have to deal with those issues and those members when we put together a climate deal. And you might as well have them at the table. Chelsea, we have to keep in mind why we are working to address climate change, because we are, in my case, very concerned about the impact on humanity and on individuals. And, and we have to keep that motivation in mind when we think about people who live in West Virginia, whose livelihood is dependent upon coal. I think it is very reasonable that we need to put together some sort of transition program for people engaged in that economy. And I don't say that as just an aside. I mean, I think that needs to be a central part of what we do in a climate policy, A, because I think we have a moral obligation to that, but also B, because it's the political reality. And so the fact that the West Virginians are in key positions of leadership in the Senate, yes, it could mean you can't put together the climate proposal, the climate policy that some on the far left would like to do. But on the other hand, it means you have an opportunity to have a direct conversation about what does it take to do this deal? I think in some ways it forces a more pragmatic climate discussion. And I think there's an opportunity there. And at the 
the very least, it reminds people that you cannot ignore the West Virginians or the Alaskans or the, the, the members from any particular part of the country when you do a climate policy. Right. Everyone needs to be at the table. And I think we saw, we have seen over the last decade, the impacts of Republicans not being at the table, either because they didn't want to be or because they weren't invited. And so, yeah, yep. if we are going to get that durable policy, that bipartisan policy, you have to invite the people who you might think are going to be difficult and you're going to have to make it worth their while. And it's just how the sausage is made in D.C. But also when you have important people, you know, when if you get the buy off of a Senator Manchin or a Senator Capito, Senator Murkowski on a climate solution, then to me, it just means that you've created a more sound policy. And so we want that, right? Well, Chelsea, today, I think you and I agree, climate is increasingly an urgent problem. Eventually, we are going to have a climate policy. So my counsel to members is that they need to either be at the table or on the menu. I mean, it's an old adage, but I think it's reasonable to assert that we are eventually going to have a climate policy. The only question really is, what is that climate policy? And so, for, and, and I think with so much of the private sector now recognizing that, with young voters of all political affiliations recognizing that, there is now a sense of inevitability that forces almost all members to participate in the climate discussion. It's a, it's a big shift over the last few years. Well, Alex, I think it's going to be really interesting to watch what happens not only in the next few days as some of the final vote tallies come in at the time of recording, but um, just how the how the bodies of Congress react for the remainder of their term and then moving into next year. And, you know, it does look like it is going to be a President Biden. Um, but I know that we'll all be watching and we appreciate all of your efforts. And thank you for being part of this EcoRight team. It's always great to have other um, for I love working with other former Hill staffers because I just think there's a level of, of understanding of how the process works that is really important and fun. And so it was great to catch up with you and hear your insights. And Chelsea, I think we're where the mechanics of how we put together a climate deal is are as important substance of the climate deal. We can't have climate that doesn't go through the Congress. Eventually, we have to get to that point. And so it's a combination of what are the policy ideals and what are the limitations of the legislative process. That's the most interesting conversa climate conversation in Washington right now. Well, I look forward to that conversation continuing and, and for all of us, to all of us being a part of it. And again, thank you for being here on the show today. The pleasure. Good to see you. Take care. Well, Price, I think this is one of the most interesting episodes that we have ever recorded in the sense that the news was constantly changing. So what we knew on the day that Alex Flint and I recorded our conversation versus what we knew when I originally cut my introduction segment to when I cut it again, <laughs> it's a moving target, it seems, but hopefully things are going to chill out for a while. 
It's going to chill till January, um, at least in the electoral or election sense when, you know, you have a couple Senate seats up in Georgia. But yes, um, for context, for listeners, obviously, if you listen to the whole interview with you and Alex Flint just there, which was really, really awesome. thought he had some great points in there, and I really enjoyed uh, getting his take on everything. But obviously, that was cut before we knew last over the past weekend that Joe Biden, Saturday, late Saturday morning, East Coast time, earlier Saturday morning, um, if you're on the West Coast, that Joe Biden would be the president-elect and the election would be called. So, you know, at least just from my standpoint, I'm glad that we have finality to it. Um, you know, regardless, uh, if you're the sitting president, don't think there is anything final about it. We've got finality to it and for all intents and purposes. And we know who the president-elect is. We can now move forward. It's been a long, long exhausting slog, especially depending on the state you're in, you know, how close things, if you've had a Senate race like we did here in South Carolina, but I'm just glad that we can now move on and get ready to turn the page. For sure. I think that this election took a lot out of all of us. And I certainly know that there are a lot of feelings, whether you're on the winning side or the losing side, but I have to say that I keep going back to something that Vice President-elect Biden has said, and that is that he is not a red president or a blue president, but an American president, or that's what he will be. And and I really want to take that to heart. And I think it will be interesting to see what overtures he makes to folks like us when it comes to um, moving forward on some sort of climate policy. Because as, as Alex Bosmoski noted in our last week's segment, you know, with a divided government, one party can't control all the levers. And so I think there is an opportunity for our voice to be heard. And a guy like um, Vice President-elect Biden is is the type that, from my experience working with his office when I was in the Senate and from what I hear about others, you know, he's that guy that will re- reach across the aisle and he wants to bring people together. And so I really hope we can all embrace that spirit and get back to being Americans I think so many times, Shels, that when candidates have won, whether it's a presidential candidate, where it might be, whether it might be somebody, you know, at Senate seat trying to, you know, talking about unity and bringing a state together. So many times you hear it and I feel like it's platitudes, you know, even going back years. But I feel like listening to Joe Biden on Saturday night, I think knowing his pedigree, who he is, how he's operated, I, I I really, really, truly believe, and I took his words to heart, and I think that he really, truly meant it about coming together uh, for, for us together as a nation because we've been fractured for so long. Whether he's the guy to do it, we don't know, but I do believe his heart is certainly there, and that is what he wants to do. For sure, and I'm looking forward to his getting the chance to do that and We'll certainly do my part to cooperate. Um, we have too many issues in this country that need tackling right now for us to kind of for everyone to retreat into their corners and stay there. And as you and I both know from our days working on Capitol Hill, it's a short window of being able to get things done because they'll be in the midterm election mode at some point And, you know, four years is not very long it goes by fast, I guess. It I does. Say. You're, you're right. And that's a great point to bring up that we get into the midterm cycle so fast. I will say one thing that did get me excited, well, albeit it was mostly all Democratic voters. I can't, you know, 
paint it with a broad swath. But when you heard reaction from people um, on television on Saturday and through the weekend and honestly into this week when you've heard commentators but voters talk about, you know, Biden presidency, I do get excited uh, for the fact that I hear climate change is one of the first things out of people's mouth, talking about unity, talking about, you know, many talk about health care. But climate change is pretty darn close to the top that I've heard out of so many people's mouth about excited for Biden to tackle. I'm excited. Hopefully he will tackle it, too, and, and can help guide. I just hope it is in the way that we hope and we want. I did hear or read this morning that of um, when you look at young voters, you know, and those are voters between the ages of 18 and I think it was 25 or 26, um, that they considered climate change a top three issue that determined who they voted for. And so, again, we're seeing the power of the youth um, vote. And, you know, we have young people um, in the eco-right community who would like to see their policymakers, their lawmakers take a more aggressive stance on climate change. And I think that's going to continue to be true as we move forward. So hopefully those forces can merge with um, a willingness of a Biden administration to come to the table. And it may not be doable in two years, you know, especially if we're going for something that is durable and bipartisan, those things tend to be more marathons than sprints, but we got to get in the race. (laughs) Yep. All right. uh, Moving forward. That's what we'll do next week before you tell everybody who our guest next week will be. Let me thank Alex Flint too. You thanked him earlier. I thought it was really awesome. Uh, Thanks to Alex for joining us a little bit earlier in your interview. Want to shout out uh, some new members that we've had sign on to uh, stand with us. Matthew L. in Georgia, Julia S. in Texas, Michael T. Florida, Lou F. in uh, Virginia, and Gabrielle W. in South Carolina. And you want to subscribe to get weekend review. You want to get uh, all the resources that we put out, polls. We do not overload you. We do not overwhelm you. But we would love for you to stand with us. Republican.org forward slash join. It takes mere seconds to do it. Strength is in numbers, people. And we need everybody that we can get. Chelsea Henderson. And while we're on that note, we have not made a plea for a while to um, give us a review. So while you're over on Apple Podcasts, you open it up in your phone or you listen on your desktop, whatever um, device that you use, you have an option to click the number of stars and you want more stars. So five stars would be amazing. And you can even write a little one line or two lines. Something you like about a specific episode is great. We share that feedback with our guests. If it's something about one of us, if there's something you want to hear, throw it in there. We read those reviews. I mean, we are a small operation. So it's me, it's Price, it's Bob, it's Wen. And we're looking to bring you the uh, interviews that you want to hear. So that's a place where you can definitely weigh in. All right, Chelsea, who we got uh, coming up next week? So next week, I'm bringing our listeners a conversation I had with Jerome Hewlett, who is a new board member over at the Citizens Climate Lobby's CCE branch. So that is their education branch. And he has a really interesting background in 
um, business, entrepreneurship, um, innovation, and he is going to bring those skills to bear on CCE. And so we talk a little bit about what that means in the climate sphere. And I'm super excited for our listeners to hear him. And then in a couple of weeks, just a little teaser, Price, I broke into the U.S. Senate, not literally, figuratively, we have two senators booked right now to record. I'm not going to say who, and I know schedules can change, but just to tease our listeners, two U.S. senators in the works for after Thanksgiving, for our episodes after Thanksgiving. That, folks, is what you call a professional radio tease, but for this medium, the podcast tease done so well, Chelsea. All right, just um, excited about that, but also as we get out of here, folks, stay safe out there. Uh, obviously, the pandemic still ongoing as everybody starts to descend indoors, whether it's getting colder, wherever you are around the country, it may be cold already. I know here in the southeast, it is getting much colder here, but folks, please stay safe. Please stay vigilant. Wear your mask and just look out for others. Until next week, Chels. All right, we'll see you then, Price. See you then. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.